Bibles with you this morning, you can turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Jesus Christ came into our world to conquer it, to establish His own kingdom, which will never fail, and He did it without lifting a finger against another, except for maybe one time when He turned over tables in the temple because people were being denied access to God over money. But even when He was taken to be killed, Jesus didn't resist. He didn't demand justice. This passage continues with a general description for Christians as to what chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 mean. That our character and attitudes result from no longer being conformed to this world. They're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. The power of the Gospel is at work to create new lives of worship. The presentation of our whole lives to God as living sacrifices that demonstrate His will in our individual lives every single day. Verses 3 through 13 encouraged us in the proper view of ourselves to one another as members in the body of Christ. Now verses 14 to 21 shift the focus mainly onto relationships between Christians and non-Christians. We see that signaled in verse 14 that we're talking about those who persecute us in verse 20. Our Enemies. It's very sobering to consider how much our attitudes toward other people ought to be transformed to the extent that we begin to look like Jesus. When we read the commands we've been given for good works, we're getting a description of who Jesus was and what Jesus was like. And again, we we tend to think or maybe even like to think of good works almost exclusively in terms of the things we don't do, right? So uh, what marks Christians? What are they known for? Often uh, we don't drink, we don't cuss, etc., etc., etc. Which is really, when you think about it, it's not that there's nothing to be said for those things. It's that that's really nothing more than a glorified version of historic social etiquette, really. Um, Which, again... You don't need the Holy Spirit to accomplish any of those things. So they aren't miracles of grace, right? For many, their whole Christianity is defined by what they don't do, where they won't go, who they won't be seen with, what they won't say, etc., etc. And of course, the Bible at times addresses what we might need to do in situations like that, but it isn't the Bible's story. It's not what's meant to define us, which is what selfless love for others, even our enemies, is for. But the justification of the ungodly through the grace of God in Christ transforms us, at least it does in Scripture, to people who are not necessarily unlike the world because of what they do and we don't, but by our refusal to fight for ourselves. By our refusal to, in every aspect of our lives, attempt to serve and satisfy ourselves. That's really what sets Christians apart from the world because all the world does is satisfy itself and do what it wants and what it feels. We are being transformed by the grace of God to be people of peace in particular in a world filled with chaos and defined by selfishness. Let me pray and we'll look at the passage together. Father, Forgive me of my sins. Have your hand upon me. As I preach your word this morning, Lord, I cannot do this without your grace, without your power, without your words being mine. 
So God, be with me for the sake of your people and your mercy and salvation for those who hear. And God, I ask that you would watch over all those who hear. That God, you would soften our hearts to hear your word, to actually hear it, to actually consider it, rather than just take a place every Sunday. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 14 of Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. With all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The function of these verses is to describe in general how our character and attitudes are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. The content of verses 14 through 21 in particular, however, address the selflessness of love in action towards others, specifically our persecutors, those who hurt us and our enemies. In justifying us by grace through faith alone in Christ, God has made us, we know from 12:1 and 2, all worshipers as those whose whole lives are sacrifices of worship to God, Christians are not oriented toward self, but instead toward others. Since we are gods, we walk humbly, both toward God and toward others, since we belong to God. God has created faith, hope, and love in us. One commentator writes, Faith is the basis of hope, and faith and hope sustain the love as it is in action within the body of the church and towards those on the outside. In writing about this distinct kind of love in 1 Corinthians 13.5, Philippians 2.4, Martin Luther says that love makes all things common property, the good as well as the bad, because love seeks not its own interests, but also the interests of others. You can remember how this kind of love is spoken of by the Virgin Mary when she was still a virgin in Luke chapter 1, verse 48, that it has regarded the low estate of His handmaiden, of God's servant. It's poured out on us in Christ through the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us, renews our minds as worshipers so that we become oriented actually towards others in the same way that Christ was every single day with humility and love that doesn't seek its own but instead serves others. This is what God is making us all into, beloved. We usually try so hard to define ourselves as Christians. Again, by all these things we refuse to do now that we're saved. Our testimony is kind of, I used to be like this, I used to do this, I used to talk like this, now I'm like this, I talk like this, I do this. When in reality we're meant to be marked and known much more by how we tend to serve and treat others all the time instead of ourselves, even in death if necessary. as Christ Himself. No, nobody's ditching in that line, are they? Right? To lay down our lives for other people, even our 
enemies. Nobody's jumping to the front of that one. Nobody wants that to be the contest. Let me die to myself first. No, we we pick works that make it look like, and may, this may be out of a genuine desire to please God, but we pick things that make it look like we take God and we take being a good Christian person way more seriously than others. Right? We 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 know what God's law does to us. It crushes us. It accuses us before it does anything else. And so often we kind of try to put off the actual law and create more law so that we have more opportunities to be righteous according to our own understanding. Then we can feel better about not obeying the actual commands and even look better to others. It's easier to make our own law and follow it than it is to follow God's. But our image is not the point. That's really not what a testimony is based on. Avoiding the appearance of evil, for example. This is a a phrase that actually can be translated much differently, much better actually, according to the original Greek, But which I know is a throwaway thing to say, but it is. It's it's different. But that idea of avoiding the appearance of evil, it doesn't get us off the hook of selfless love for others that went as far as Jesus did. Always remember, Our Lord Jesus, holy, without sin, not tainted by anything, always obedient to the Scripture, never breaking the Scripture, never dishonoring God, never coming close, was known as a tax collector, a Pharisee, a drunk, a glutton, all these things. If you aren't called a drunk or a glutton sometimes, you're probably not Christ-like, which is pretty amazing. We need our Lord's words and His example when as renewed worshipers we learn to bless our persecutors and treat our enemies with heavenly kindness in verse 14. Heavenly kindness. Verse 14 and verse 20 here are actually the um, the ultimate form of this selflessness that's being elaborated on here in verses 16 through 19 anyway. But notice it's also being illustrated in verse 15. As we're encouraged to adapt our whole demeanor, attitudes, and actions to what others are experiencing. To what others are going through. That's what is to determine, as believers, our attitude, our actions. What are other people going through? What do they need from me? Not what do I need? This is something we might all experience if you're called, for example, uh, in the middle of a family celebration or something to, to bring comfort to the sadness of a family who's just lost a loved one. We, we don't do that as mere duty because we're good professional Christians. Because we're Christians, we become selflessly Christ-like, not morally obligated. Jesus wasn't to join in weeping at a time of weeping. We, we need to be people that are genuinely able to walk out of someone's new baby being born in the hospital, rejoicing with them, and if necessary, go up to the third floor and weep with someone who's just lost someone or been diagnosed with something and be genuine in both places. Again, those are commands to feel. And that makes it sound like, well, that's then it will never be genuine because I'm commanded to do it. No, beloved, for it to be genuine, God has to be the one doing it in you. Because we can't work up genuine feelings on our own. Just even biologically, to go from weeping to rejoicing in the space of ten minutes is very hard. Very hard. Things like this are precisely what it means to be told sort or pulled towards such lowly things, lowly people in verse 16. Of course, the poor and the needy, but also sometimes those who are 
have been brought low by the circumstances they're facing in their lives. It is to stop thinking of oneself. It's to stop being self-centered, self-motivated. Again, all impossible. All impossible. You and I cannot obey God's law in any form we receive it. But God is telling us what He requires of us. Therefore, He's pushing us to find all refuge for our salvation in His Son, all faith that we are righteous in the righteousness of Christ alone because we can't perform these things unless He's in it, doing it within us. And if we're getting in the way of that with our own effort and will and all this attempt to be righteous, we won't live like this. That's when you've got to start creating other laws so that you can look righteous. Let's create different standards of what it means to be a good Christian rather than what's actually in the Bible. And you can see the damage this can do both to our own faith but also to the needs of others which are constant. We have to ask the Lord to break our hearts. Beloved, we have to do this. We have to be nursed off of ourselves. We don't pick up our coats, head out of that party. Well, got to go do my duty. Don't want it to look like I don't care. That's not what is motivating us. We aren't mercenaries. We're worshipers. We aren't mercenaries for God. We're we're worshipers. This is our identity now. This is who we are. Justified by grace through faith alone in Christ. So yes, as as, as we read commands, we we pray, Lord, have mercy on us. Break my heart towards others, God. I'm not here yet, right? Especially the lowly and the needy. Let's stop trying to look like something. Look like somebody. Making the, the... whole bent of our Christianity, our image, and how we appear to others and what we're known by. And just learn how to love and serve other people in everyday life without any concern for the optics. Right? Never be wise in your own sight, Paul says here in verse 16. Ever. Never. What a command. Think about that for a minute. Never be wise in your own sight. I thought that was the goal of life. Paul says, never. As Proverbs 26.12 reads, there's more hope for a fool than for someone who is self-centered, who's wise in their own sight, who thinks they know and other people don't. There's more hope for a fool than for that person. Isn't that ironic? If you're a good Christian, you won't have to tell anybody else that's what you want. You won't have to do that. They'll know. They'll know. People will know. Saying that's what you are or what somebody else is is not what makes it true. We're basing that on a standard probably that we've created. We're out here running around trying to prove something to other people about ourselves. When we curse others or repay evil for evil, which just comes naturally in verse 17. It's one of the most natural human feelings there is. You hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you. You did me wrong, I'm going to do you wrong. That's, that's normal life in the world. That's what it means to be conformed to the world. That's precisely how you think. You did this to me, well now it's my turn. I'm going to do this to you. Oh, Christians talk like that. Christians talk like that all the time. Right? We shouldn't, but we do. When we curse others, repay evil for evil. When we hold grudges and unforgiveness or our intent on revenge in verse 19. Letting somebody else know that we won't stand for it. Right? We aren't showing the selfless love of Christ that the Gospel is generating in us as the new worship 
of Christians in the world. Instead, we're acting just like the world. We, we are acting just like the world, regardless of what we might be calling ourselves. That Christianity isn't in those things. It, again, it's, it's not in a spiritualized version of social etiquette. And learning social etiquette and cues to be a good member of society is important. Absolutely. Don't mean to make light of that. Don't go around burping in people's faces. It's not cool. Right? It's, it's not etiquette. It's, so there, of course, is something to be said for that. But what, is, what does the world so often say? What do we hear so much? I don't get mad. I get even. You know, all these weird little sayings we put up on social media about ourselves. My current favorite is uh, the devil whispered in my ear, you can't withstand the storm. And I whispered back, I am the storm. The devil's really afraid of you, just so you know. He is terrified of you, you tough, toughy, tougher. So, if the church isn't any different from that, why are we here? Why are we here? I don't get mad, I get evil. You did that to me, I'm going to do this to you. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You hurt me, I'm going to hold a grudge against you. Why are we here? We do that out there and not run Jesus' name through the mud at the same time. What is this obsession we all have with settling the score when Christ was killed to settle ours for us? Did He not rise from the dead after that? Is our justification before God not enough? Is it not enough for us to be justified before God? Is that not enough? Do we have to justify ourselves before everyone else from our wives who we're supposed to love as Christ loved the church and we don't for the husbands? Is, is it not enough to have been justified by God? Do I have to have everybody else in my life justify my existence too? And answer to me too? And satisfy me too? Do I have to make sure all scores are settled here on earth horizontally in all my relationships also? We often hold the path to peace in our own hands. The Bible is teaching here in verse 18. Often, peace could happen if we would just change. That's the rub, right? Well, I, I, I can't or I don't want to. But often, peace is in our hands. We just we step over it. We just have to get the last word, don't we? We just have to win. We, we have to get our way. We have to make sure our voice is heard. One of the strangest things Christians could say. Beloved, because we've been so graciously loved by Jesus when we deserved only wrath, let us be peacemakers. Now, this is verse 18. We, we all make a choice when presented with peace or war with others. Not... Politically, of course, that is very much out of our hands, unfortunately. We're at the mercy of our leaders when it comes to war and world peace and all things like that. I don't know who it was that said it, but I, one gentleman said, I think it's wrong for old men to create wars for young men to fight. I wish I knew who said that. I like that very much. And I don't, I'm not a soldier. I'm not a veteran. right? I'm, but I'm saying it, it is interesting, isn't it, that these guys get angry in this room and all these policies and it's like, hey, you, I'm not going to stand for this. You go die for this, right? No, it's, but this is, this is the world. We've, we've, we make a choice when presented with peace or war with others. 
we make a choice. As, as much as it depends on us, the Bible says, live peaceably with all. With all. If, if there's, in other words, if there's anything you can control in a conflict or in preventing one, if there's any way that there being peace depends on you, do it. Do it. That's God's command. Do it. And again, when you start walking through verses, and you, particularly when there's law in a text and a command, and you, if, you, if you take it honestly, you start seeing, man, being a Christian is, Lord, how am I to do this? Right? The, the first thing that the text is doing in the law is saying, look, you've not done this. You need to repent. You need forgiven. You need grace. You need God's power for you in the gospel. There's, there's, for all of it. For all of it. Again, this is what's being commanded of justified people. Right? Of the church. This, this comes to us. Sometimes people won't let there be peace. That happens too. And so conflict is the only way. Sometimes war is required if there's going to be peace, right? That's one of the most wonderful things about Jesus. When Jesus says the Prince of Peace is going to bring peace to the earth, you know he's going to do that. Come out of heaven on a white horse and crush his enemies. Sometimes war is required if there's going to be peace. Sometimes you have to blow something up for it to be made whole. I heard a guy say one time, sometimes you have to preach a church empty for it to fill up. That's fun. Right? This, this is often the case. Sometimes war is required for the sake of peace. That's often the case in the church. We just don't have the courage to do it. We all know what would make peace, but we don't want to do it. It's hard. It's hard. The Scripture says that for those whom God has justified, when the ball is in our court, we choose peace. When, when what happens next does depend on us, what comes next should be peace. So, if me not saying that retort will bring peace, then I won't say it. If me not taking that step will bring peace, then I won't do it. As much as it depends on you. So, you could, do you realize the culture of deferral and self-deflection this would create? We'd be naturally doing what he told us to do earlier in verses 1 through 13, or verses 3 through 13, sorry. We'd be trying to outdo one another in showing honor. Right? Because nobody would have that, like, I need to win. There wouldn't be that. There are a few things that would make a church more countercultural than, like, we think it's our rules and our, our standards, and we, we have those. Sure. There are commands, there are things the Bible very clearly calls sin, and we don't compromise on those. But what we're known by, at least as Jesus designed it, is this love that we have for one another that's so selfless it makes the world say, oh, you follow that Jesus guy that died for his enemies. And here's the thing, the ball is always in our court until it's not. And it wouldn't sound so threatening and unrealistic if Paul wouldn't have said, with all, here in verse 18, with all, Beloved, oftentimes we could make something right if we died to ourselves. It could stop. It could end. The ugliness could end if we would just 
let it go, but we're not going to do that. We're not. We're not going to do that. We need grace. We could end a lot of conflicts. We could end a lot of strife, but we just won't go to people humbly, will we? We, we, we won't listen to what Jesus said. Now, we'll be simultaneously, blatantly disobeying and simultaneously claiming that we're good Christians. How do we do that? How do we convince ourselves of that? I'm not going to obey this at all. But I am going to obey this either this thing I created or I'm really going to focus on this one thing and kind of make it my banner. I'm not going to be obeying this, but... But, like, at what time does anybody have the moral high ground in a church? Right? Jesus says that if you have aught with your brother, go to them. We don't do that. We don't do that. We go through the avenues of making sure somebody else goes to our brother for us. Right? We usually make the deacons do that. It's not their job, it's not what they're for. But that's what we do. These poor guys can't be dealing with meeting the physical needs of the church and everybody's complaints. That's not what deacons are for. And then even that phrase, you think about that the Bible actually says, it actually commands, do all things without complaining or grumbling. Does anybody know that verse is in the Bible? Because all of us complain and grumble. While saying... No, I'm a good Christian. I don't do this. I don't do that. You complain and grumble? Yes. Nobody's perfect. No, we have to win, don't we? Unless, of course, we happen to need mercy in a situation. Then we're going to talk about mercy and forgiveness and how could you do this to me? And God, help us, beloved. God, help us. Be careful that you do not bite and devour one another, lest you be consumed by one another. Galatians 5.15 Beloved, more often than not, the injustices we face as worshipers of God, the unfair conflicts and insults, etc., what they're actually doing under the providence of God is providing an opportunity for us to obey, to show tremendous honor in the sight of all in verse 17. That's what we should be after. These are the situations where who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how Jesus responded can be made most visibly clear to watching eyes. These, these are the things that uniquely mark us as the church in the world. As the church. Morality is a dime a dozen. All religions are about morality. You, you're not proclaiming anything special when your platform is morality. I, here, this stinks. But the Muslims are technically better at morality than we are. Alright? A lot of them don't break their own rules. They're very serious about it. So morality doesn't really prove anything. Being serious about something doesn't really prove anything. You can be serious about being a total jerk. You can be serious about video games. You can be serious about football. You can be serious about makeup or crossfit or Whatever, right? It, it, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't hold any value. That's human. That's the world. What we're reading in these commandments is that you and I are to be a people that are so, such fish out of water in the world that the world is saying, what is it with you? Why are you like that? Peter talks about it like we're going to have to 
defend our hope sometimes. Are American Christians hopeful or are they, or are they chicken little? I mean, what's the deal? Are we Christ crucified for sinners or the sky is falling? We are not conformed to the world. We behave exactly the opposite of this world when we respond like Christ to those who persecute or mistreat us or have disappointed us. Listen, that's transformation. That's what the Bible calls being transformed. Rather than not drinking or not cussing, for example. Those are the two big ones that always pop up. Of course, the Bible tells us don't, you can't get drunk. It's a command. Don't be a drunkard. But we, we, like we stake our whole Christian identity on rules like that. It's funny. It's funny. I, I, uh, Paul in Galatians, when he's talking about how you know, he's, he's defending his uh, credentials as an apostle, and he talks about how at one point um, the Judaizers, his opponents, had sent spies to look into what he was doing and report back to them. And he said they were spying out our freedom. Because that's part of what Galatians is all about, the fact that you're free now in Christ. This happens all the time. People are going to spy out your freedom. Because, well, who knows why? There's a myriad of reasons. But this, look, a couple weeks ago, I was telling the crowd on Wednesday night, a couple weeks ago, you know, I announced I was going to the 15-17 conference in Bentonville, Arkansas. I was really excited to go and, and uh, mentioned that I was going to be doing that. And by that afternoon, somebody had gotten on a website of the conference and saw that there was going to be beer on tap and called one of the deacons and said, hey, there's going to be beer on tap. I didn't have beer at the conference. Even though I'm free in Christ, I could have if I wanted to. But I didn't. I don't really like it anyway. I don't need it. But isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Spying out our freedom. Deacons, deacons! Pastor's going to a conference where there's beer... That's what it's all about. Church is a funny place, man. It's a funny place. I'm a good Christian. I don't do those things. Like you gossip, you murmur, you complain about something every other week, but you don't have beer. Congratulations. Right? Oh, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Isn't it uncomfortable when we find out what our church is really about? Yeah. The mark of a worshiper of God in the age of Christ is to strive for peace. For peace. As much as it depends on you. Not to be contentious in everyday life. Contentious is a quality of the world. Always having a complaint. Always having an itch that needs to be scratched. Always having an agenda. Always being mad. Always complaining. That is the world. 
The world has Karens, not the church. The world is marked by the opposite of everything God is calling us to in this passage. And look, I know that the sound of the line, what our church is all about, is probably offensive because most of you aren't like that at all. The problem is that the squeaky wheels get the grease. And the squeaky wheels define the image and the identity. And we, 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 the, the, the Scripture teaches us very clearly what you do when you have an issue with somebody or what they're doing. And if it was honest and, and your desire was to please God and be glorifying to God and defend the church, you would follow the Scripture down the line. right? The frustrating thing is how that kind of stuff becomes what church is always about. Always got to work with the squeaky wheel. Supposed to be making disciples, always got to make this person happy over here, or this person happy over here, or scratch this over here, or fix this over here. And yeah, man, it gets old. Yeah, it gets old. We shine as lights in the world by being people of peace, beloved. People of peace. As we do these things, as these things are the things that mark our character, the Christian, just each one of us, no matter how much money you have, how your status, you know, as, as Christians in the body of Christ, we are the place of the revelation of the powerful saving love of God in this world. When we live like Jesus, when we love like Jesus, when we serve like Jesus, when we deflect and defer like Jesus, that's the way you get marked out. That's what's not necessarily uh, necessarily appealing to the world, but will stir something in them that something is different here. You you guys aren't about making a power play for control. You guys aren't about winning. What's the difference with you guys? Why do you serve each other like that? I don't know anywhere on the earth where people serve each other like that and look over things and forgive things and and will address things when the truth is on the line, even if it's unpopular. When we have the exact same character and attitude and response of those in the world and then just throw some moral rules that we live by on top of it as our alleged witness, we don't have a witness. And like, why do we want to be involved? Like, what? why? If you're going to claim the name of Christ, then proclaim the name of Christ. If you want to be a church, which is an embassy of heaven on earth, then be that. If you want to be a club for buddies that all have the same interests, then be that. But don't try to mix the two. Do we realize how countercultural the Scripture is? Counter every culture. Nobody's like this. Therefore, the church must be. We've been forgiven of all our sin. All of it. Jonathan Grothy writes that in the Christian worshiper there is present for the world the holy and loving God in His ministry of law and gospel. Yes, 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 in you, in you. We put aside our anger. We put aside our natural impulse for personal vengeance. Instead, we do deeds of love and make way for the wrath of God to work in its own time and in its own way in verse 20. We don't worry about that. We don't, like, I can't wait for the wrath of God to fall on these freaks. No, no. 
No. We're, we're running out into the water, into the freezing North Atlantic Sea as the Titanic is sinking, trying to get people into the lifeboat. We don't have time to judge. We should be judged. And when I say that, I'm not like jumping on the train of the world. Doesn't the Bible say judge not lest you be judged? Yes, it also says judge with righteous judgment, not by appearances. But like, we're here to save people. They don't have time for our personal junk. It's, it's got to go. Again, we've been forgiven of all our sin. We've been made righteous by the blood and righteousness of somebody else who absorbed God's wrath on us in our place. Like that should have, we should have gotten wrath. We don't need to be going around trying to dole out wrath on anybody. And it, it, listen, it's hard. Right? And it, just from a human standpoint, you don't even really have to be Christian to be appalled at some of the directions the world is going today. And in, in one sense, it is good and, and holy to pray for God to come and for God to put an end to these things and to end evil. And for that to happen, sometimes people are going to have to be crushed. But the, the thing is, that's true, and because it's God, it's we, we, we trust that it's good and righteous. He's not capricious and with a short fuse. You and I, however, that's, leave that part to God. Leave that thing about God to God. He will repay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Every score will be settled. In fact, it has been at the cross God said that He reconciled everything to Himself through Christ at the cross. You don't have to get revenge. You don't have to. You don't have to take vengeance. And is that hard? Especially when somebody has really, genuinely hurt you, assaulted you, destroyed you. Like, really leave it to God? Yeah, it's hard. I just want to encourage you. Trust me, there is nowhere else you'd rather leave vengeance than in the hands of God who is holy. He will take care of it. Whatever, and sometimes people, even if like authorities have been established to punish evil, that's part of the deal, and hopefully they do their job, but sometimes they don't, and sometimes they can't. God is never limited by such weaknesses. So if somebody sins that they've committed, that they've done to you, if they aren't dealt with in this life, don't worry. And if they are dealt with this in life, in this life, don't think that means vengeance has been served or justice has been served. That is in the hand of God alone in the eternal court of His holy throne. Either a person's debts, their sins, have been paid for by Christ or they will pay for their sin on their own for eternity. Don't worry. You and I don't need to take vengeance. The gospel is true. Leave that to God and love and serve one another. That doesn't mean you're expected to be goody-goody with people that have tried to destroy you. Just don't walk around with the bitterness of it in your heart because then you just let them keep hurting you. Just, just look, most of the things we do to each other in here, we could let them go. Now, yes, sometimes, even Jesus is going to say in Matthew, sometimes steps have got to be taken. Things have got to be done. That's part of being the church because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know Jesus said that, right? But don't get mad at me if I talk about leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. All of it.
believing this to the extent that it transforms our lives is the path to true witness, beloved, to a true testimony. Those actions are a testimony the world knows nothing about either. That's why God calls us to them. We're free to live lives of selfless love and peace with others. He reconciles all. We don't have to win anymore. God is our justice. Okay, We're free. You're free. You're free. Believer, you're free. It's finished. We say nothing of Christ when we respond to others or to the world as they would respond to us in conflict. Just nothing. It's just they cancel each other out. We are ministers of reconciliation, according to Paul in Second Corinthians five. Like, That's what we're about—the reconciliation. To be able to, to say to those that reject Jesus Christ and refuse to believe in Him, He died for you. He longs to draw you to Himself. Right? He longs to wipe this clean and make you whole and save you. Receive Him. I'm not your enemy, right? That's what we can say to the world. I'm not your enemy because I disagree with some of the choices you make. You don't have to worry about whether I disagree with your choices. But we all stand before the Father, and the Father, knowing that, has reached out to us to grant amnesty to rebels. The King has granted amnesty to rebels. That is not just meant to save us eternally from our sins, but to transform our everyday lives into people that look like and talk like and think like somebody paid their whole bill, took all the punishment they deserve on themselves, on himself. You want to look like people that have had that happen to them. If we just look like the world, again, what is the point? And, and, and Here as we close here. If you think about it, this is not only how the victory of Christ and the love of God has worked out on our persecutors and our external enemies. You're looking there in verse 21. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That also applies to the enemy that still lurks within us. Within us. The old Adam in me. Jesus commands us to pray daily in the Lord's Prayer to be forgiven and to be delivered from such things. It's through the proclamation of Christ for us in the Gospel, often through actless, or, or actless, acts of selfless love and service toward each of us that the strong love of God at work and the all-powerful Gospel will overcome the evil remaining in each one of us. It's the, it's the same method God has. We're to be broken by grace. This is a place where we're to receive it from each other and give it to each other. That's why we gather. So let's stop being overcome by the evil in us, beloved. Let us believe the Gospel and be transformed by its amazing power. Evil is not overcoming the world or in us by fighting it in kind. By the evil ways and means the world uses in return to try to stop it. But by being conquered ourselves by the selfless love of Christ for the world in the Gospel. We are being transformed by the grace of God to be people of peace in a world filled with chaos and defined by selfishness. That's why we'll be the last to serve ourselves, to exalt ourselves, 
we'll be the last to demand we get our own way. We'll be the last to take revenge or to try to settle the score. Not because justice doesn't matter, but because we have faith in God that He will take care of it. We are the last to try to settle the score. We're the last to refuse reconciliation with others. We're people of peace. We're beneficiaries of peace recipients and possessors of the peace of God in Christ and therefore we're dispensaries of it in worship in everyday life. I want to close with a quote from Dane Ortland from his book Gentle and Lowly which is a book about the heart of Christ for us. I just started it and it's amazing. He says this, But all Christian toil flows from fellowship with a living Christ whose transcending defining reality is gentle and lowly. One time Jesus told us what he was like, kind of. And he said, I am gentle and lowly. He astounds and sustains us with his endless kindness. Only as we walk ever deeper into this tender kindness can we live the Christian life as the New Testament calls us to. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake. Everywhere we go, the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of a divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. Receive the grace of Christ for you and for others. Amen. Would you stand, please?